Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot this week, a little after 10 a.m. on October 19th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Nice to be back. And happy birthday, Julie. Oh, thank you. It was a couple days ago. So things are happening fast here. First, let's talk about the bipartisan agreement reached Tuesday on my birthday by Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, who's chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, and his Democratic ranking member, Senator Patty Murray of Washington. We've been talking about these negotiations since August. What's actually in the deal? Margo, you did a great tweet storm on this. Yes, I I, uh, I did my penance for not reading the Graham-Cassidy legislation right away by reading this one yesterday uh, and sharing my thoughts. Uh, there are a couple of things in here, mostly things that we expected. So there is funding for these cost-sharing reduction payments that we've talked about before. These are payments that go to insurance companies so that they can provide discounts on deductibles and other forms of cost-sharing for low-income Obamacare customers. Uh, the bill would fund those for two years. There is the creation or the expansion of a high deductible form of health insurance that's called catastrophic insurance in Obamacare. Uh, the bill calls them copper plans. Uh, and these are currently only available to people who are under 30, and the bill would make them available to anyone who wanted to pay the price. It would also change the risk pool, which is a little wonky, but matters. Um, the bill would basically tie the hands of the Trump administration and force them to do various things that the Obama administration did with money that they get from insurers as part of their healthcare.gov user fees. So the bill basically says you have to use a set amount of this money to pay for outreach and advertising, to pay for navigators, and maybe to pay for call centers, although that seems like it's still under negotiation. And then it also said you have to send us a lot of reports on how you're doing, uh, like every other week you have to send data. And then at the end of open enrollment, you have to send us these three reports saying what you did. So basically, the, the Democrats are trying to say all those things that you've been doing, Trump administration, to try and depress enrollment in the exchanges, um, we're not going to let you do and we're going to make you tell us every week whether or not you're actually doing this. Yeah, it's like a weird kind of micromanagement of the executive that I think shows a lack of trust by Congress. And then I think the most substantive policy part of this deal has to do with state innovation waivers. So these were created under Obamacare and allowed states that wanted to throw out a lot of the Obamacare rules for how they ran their markets if they could demonstrate that they had a different idea that was going to basically cover as many people, cost the federal government no more money, and provide a similar level of comprehensiveness of benefits to the people who would have gotten coverage under Obamacare. And there were complaints by witnesses before the committee from you know across the ideological spectrum that it was just too hard for states to do this. And so what the bill does, it makes it a little bit easier for states to apply for these things, and it allows them to hold on to their waivers for longer. There, there are various changes. And then there's a small change to the standards for uh, how those are evaluated. One has to do with the budgetary impact, which doesn't seem like a huge difference, but might matter to states. 
And then another one has to do with the affordability of the coverage. Uh, the standard used to be that it had to be the plans had to be at least as affordable as they would have been under Obamacare. Now it has to be comparable affordability, which you know is like maybe a slightly looser standard. But it also specifies that particular subgroups that the Democrats were worried could be vulnerable to changes have to be equally protected. So, so we should mention that that the idea behind this bill was that the Democrats and a lot of governors and practically the entire healthcare community wanted to guarantee the payment of the cost-sharing subsidies. The Republicans want some more flexibility for these waivers. Both of those things are in there. So it looks like bipartisan done deal, but there is no bipartisan done deal in healthcare, is there? No. I mean, in, on one level, this um, there's a win-win here, a big win-win here politically. If you can get to the point where the two sides both think it is in their interest to sell it and the president encourages that, the win is the Democrats get to say, um, we got the stability. We got the cost savings. Savings. The you know the the these um, prices will these this money will go to the consumer, not the insurer. Uh, we've got stability for at least two years. We can move on and start trying to fix other things. The Republicans, the promise they have been making, state flexibility is sort of an inside Washington thing. The, the uh, people don't know what that means. They know what premiums are. And Republicans have been saying we are going to bring down your premiums. These catastrophic plans would in fact have lower premiums. And, and way higher deductibles. They'd have to hire, but they're not talking about the message, the Republican political message has been, how many syllables? Premium. It's a three-syllable <laughs> message. We're going to lower your premiums. There is, you know, we don't know exactly what they're going to look like, but they should be, yeah, I understand the out-of-pocket issues. I understand why. I, I could right. I could make an argument that the premiums are not going to be very much lower either. They can say it now that they will. They can plausibly make the case that these are going to, I mean, silver, bronze, copper, they do go down. You can, you can, you can, they can at least make that case politically now. That's what the document they were passing around in favor of it says. I can see them championing that. Um, or they can say it's a first step toward lowering your premiums. We're sure. living, fulfilling our promises. We're moving in the right direction. But as we all know, what the president had a whole lot of different opinions about this in the last 24 hours. Well, we'll get hours. to that in a minute. Before okay. we get to that, Alice, you got your hands on the memos that both Republicans and Democrats were using to, to sell this plan to their colleagues. And they were, shall we say, different. They were quite different. And as you would expect, each side is playing up what they got in the negotiation and playing down or completely just not talking about at all the the concessions they made. For instance, the outreach funding, which I thought was huge and not totally expected or obvious that that would be in there. That is not mentioned at all in the Republican memo. They do not want to talk about how they're providing all this outreach money. Um, and requiring the administration to report on it. Exactly. Whereas in the Democrats' memo, that was just front and center in bold. They called it, you know, an anti-sabotage measure um, because because of the reporting requirements and the, the new rules around the administration's actions. And uh, But the Republicans are running into a lot of problems. They are feeling like anything they do to stabilize the Obamacare markets is supporting Obamacare. And they are just twisting themselves into wrestles about this. And I had one Republican senator tell me it's this bill would be putting paint on rotten wood, whereas they would prefer to just tear out the wood altogether. But as we have seen, they are not able to do that. Tear it out and set it on fire. <laughs> That's right. Well, and replace it with who knows. And yet, I mean, public opinion polls are pretty consistent that the Republicans now own the health care system. 
that whatever happens is going to be blamed on them. This has got to be sort of a, a push-pull for a lot of these Republicans. If the if the individual market actually tanks, then they're the ones who are going to be held accountable. And, you know, for whatever they talk about, you know, the, the president likes to talk about, well, we're going to go to block grants. That's not going to solve the individual market problem. I but mean, the president is still trying to blame that on the Democrats. I mean, the, the, the win-win scenario that I just said is a theoretical. If they decided they wanted to do this, that's how it, that's their that's their messaging, that's their argument, that's where they end up at the win-win. You can't do a bipartisan thing unless there's some kind of win-win. And you really can't but, do a bipartisan thing when you have each side not even agreeing on the basic premise. Right. I had several Republican senators tell me yesterday that they do not believe that it will cost the government less to make the CSR payments. But that is just a fact because of how the tax credit system is set up. But if right. you don't even accept the basic math of the situation, how can you ever come to a bipartisan agreement? Right, because you've got you've got the, the, the big bipartisan issue is Democrats versus Republicans. Then you've got this whole other series of schisms and divisions between among Republicans, House versus Senate, conservative versus more conservative. Um, they are not united, and there is not a clear signal of, of where they really want to go Which with this. Which is why we didn't get a repeal and replace, because right. of the divisions right. in the I, Republican Party. I think if party. you step back from the policy particulars of this bill, that it also has this really important important symbolic value for, I think, a lot of people in the healthcare world, for a lot of voters, but I think also for a lot of members of Congress, that it's just like, they just want to be able to do something in a normal way. You know, there were committee hearings about this. There were bipartisan negotiations. This was a normal legislative process. There might be an opportunity for amendments and markups. And I just feel like some of the enthusiasm about this bill is about its potential for helping the Obamacare markets. But I actually think we're a little bit too late for that. There's a lot of stuff that they really can't fix for next year at this point. But I think there is still this kind of for glow. For next year, meaning this year, for 2018. For 2018, right. yeah. For the open enrollment that starts in right. this 11 more, days. Right. I mean, you know, if you wanted to be sort of half glass empty on this bill, I think you could make an argument that actually this doesn't provide very much stability at all in the short term, that maybe it provides some stability in the long term, and I don't even know about that. But I think there's just there's a certain kind of hopefulness about this that like maybe this is a sign that we can do things the way that we used to do them and you could see senator john mccain came out right away and said like i'm going to vote for this and i don't think that he came out and said i'm going to vote for this bill because he was really happy about the restoration of the outreach funding or he understood the difference between you know at least as affordable or comparable affordability i think he came out and said i want to vote for this because it was a symbol of how he wants congress to do its job well let's talk about the president for a minute because obviously that's important to whether or not this bill goes forward. And President Trump has been literally all over the map on this. Uh, he keeps saying he doesn't want to give insurance companies bailouts. Then he takes credit for restarting the bipartisan negotiations by canceling the cost sharing reductions last week. That is not true. Of course, the negotiations picked up after the, the last ditch GOP effort. Uh, Cassidy Graham failed last month. Now he's back to suggesting that he doesn't like it. What impact does this indecisiveness have on the ability of this bill to move forward? Oh, uh, huge. Um, we're titling this episode Whip I felt that on Capitol Hill, and I just felt so bad for Lamar Alexander. I was in a scrum with him, and he was saying, the president called me this morning. This is the third call I've gotten from him in two weeks, and he sounded so encouraging and positive, and he said he's really going to take a look at it, and he thanked us for all our hard work. And literally, as he was speaking to reporters, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was at the podium saying the president does not support 
this agreement, just completely throwing him under the bus, undercutting him. And all the lawmakers seemed like they had whiplash. They they it's thought like the warp president... Sk- warp yeah. speed whiplash. It's not just whiplash. And then whiplash all the way back around to maybe he does support it after all. Who knows? It looked really, 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 really dead yesterday. But in, we've all learned in healthcare this year, nothing is necessarily dead. This is very much... I mean, is the is it in this form going to get passed in two weeks? Highly unlikely. Is something like it going to sort of keep limping through for a while and end up in some kind of end of the year package? I mean, the, the concept it, it, it's it, it got beat up on so much in the last couple of days, in the last twenty four hours. I guess it just seems like days <laughs> that the Murray Alexander Murray bill, as outlined two days ago, will probably have to be facelifted in some kind of way to, to you know, Trump will have to say, I fix this, or what, whatever happens. I mean, we may not see this as the pathway. It may not be, this may not be the tool that Congress actually passes, but the, the CSR issue is still has legs. Can anything get through that? I mean, the House isn't here this week, but we've already they'll heard from Speaker Ryan. Yes, they'll be back. We, we assume <laughs> they'll be back. They've already... It would be a really big story if they just say, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we've seen Speaker Ryan and Mark Walker, the head of the Republican Study Committee, come out and, and profess a, a significant lack of interest, shall we say, in doing anything along these lines. Well, part of it is that it is the president. Remember, the House took this really, really hard vote. They finally did vote to repeal and replace Obamacare. It took them, I think, until the first week of May. They had huge struggles doing it. It was tough, right? Even for these this party of conservatives that was committed to getting rid of Obamacare, it was really tough. They then voted for something that the public, what, what was it, 7% of the public liked, something like that? 17%. 17 on a good day. Still very toxic. And, right. And, and, and then the Senate didn't do it. So there's, you know, they were hung out to dry in their, you know, in, from their political perspective. And then, you know, you need... You, you probably can't – it's really hard. I mean, we've said this before, and we, I think we've said it every week. What Lamar Alexander tried to do, given the toxicity in this town and the toxicity of healthcare, was really very remarkable. I mean, we can't, we can't really – to somebody outside of Washington, they may not understand how incredibly hard what he's been doing is. It really is. It's really difficult. But he can't carry it without the support both of the leadership of the House and Senate and the president. And the president, as, as everybody around this table has said, I mean, the, can I quote my mom? Please. She, she emailed me last night. She goes, he's got so many positions. Do you have to clone yourself? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's like it is whiplash. It's like, uh, you know, I don't remember seeing a president change his mind in 11 minutes yeah. on a major piece of yeah, legislation. Yeah, I think there's two debates happening simultaneously. So one is, is this going to pass as a standalone piece of legislation quickly that can happen in time to affect the Obamacare markets for 2018? I think we pretty clearly know the answer to that is no. But I think that when Alexander Murray brought it forward and the Democratic leadership endorsed it, there was like this hope, oh, like maybe we can just pass it quickly. And I think the president being all over the place means that that is not possible, although I think that was always very unlikely. Now we're in a different question, which is, can this bill be an acceptable part of a very large package of legislation at the end of the year that's going to include a lot of must-pass stuff that Paul Ryan really cares about having passed because he doesn't want a government shutdown? I think the answer to that question is actually much harder to know. There's going to be a lot of other stuff in that package, and it's really hard to know what various people's deal breakers are going to be and what kinds of changes are going to happen to this piece of it along the way. So this started as a way to shore up the markets for the 2018 open enrollment, the one that starts on November 1st. Um, Obviously, 
after t- September 27th, it was too late. That was when insurers had to decide whether they were going to participate and whether they were and what they were going to charge. And now, I mean, since since this got announced, I've seen all these insurers saying, "Oh my God, we can't, we can't. It's too late for us to refile our rates." You know, to, they but wanted Montana an option. Did. I mean, they they let them refile in Montana the other day. One of the, of the three plans in Montana: North Carolina, one, Pennsylvania, yeah. Rhode well, Island. Maryland is trying. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, CMS that, says they can. It's the states that have the state and regulators. A lot are doing submitted it. to rates just in case. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's different in every state. But I think what they were saying is that the that the rates for the most part are loaded and ready to go when open when open enrollment begins. I mean, is there and and there was there were some insurance people saying maybe we would like the option to not take the CSRs and just keep our our rate increases instead. I mean, which is what as um, Joanne you were saying, it took a while to negotiate the the back end of this bill to figure out how to make sure there wasn't a windfall to the insurance companies. They weren't going to get both the rate increases and the CSRs. So so there's this question if you do it in December, what's the point of that? <laughs> I do not know exactly. I think that, so I have a couple of theories about this. One is that if you talk to the insurers, they will say to you two things at once. They will say, this is not going to help me for 2018, and it's really, really, really important, and I want it a lot. So I so think for that, 2019? I for mean, 20, that, they want yeah. it for 2019, but I think they just want the federal government to say to them, I'm going to be your partner again. I am not going to just screw you over at every possible turn. I think they need a symbolic lift that just says, we can work together on this. So I think there's that. I think that there is – that this would have been a great deal even just a month ago. It would have really made a difference. And I think that a lot of experts told members of Congress that this was really important, that funding these cost-sharing reductions was the most important thing that they could do to stabilize the market. Pretty much every witness at four hearings. Every witness at four hearings. I'm, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a single one who didn't say, this is my number one And the annual – and the, and the earnings calls of the insurers, if yeah. you listen to those, which I personally have not, but I have had somebody else do it for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, they've been talking about it, too. They need it. Right. So I just think there's, like, a certain amount of, like, it takes a while for people to understand the circumstances have changed. You know, they just heard it so many times times and they thought, oh, if I'm a responsible legislator, this is the thing that I have to do. So I think there's some of that. But it's also the next three months. I mean, they're not, as of right now, as of this minute, they are not getting, because of the president's announcement last Thursday night, the insurers are not getting it for October, November, and December. And that's about a billion dollars. Roughly, they, also, right? they just have to eat that loss. Because, Unless they get, yeah. you know, I mean, they need the money, they want the money. And then there, this this whole bailout thing, you could, you could address a lot- it. A lot has happened in the last few days. So we met last Friday and talked about this just after the president decided to pull the CSRs. And I think I said last week, you know, there is a possibility there will be a run for the exits from insurers. I mean, it was really hard to know if you take away the CSRs how big the freakout is going to be. We have more information now. They didn't leave. And we also know now, which it's was not surprising, which was it? it's really mm-hmm. surprising. It's but not they, really they, surprising, but, but it's, you know, yeah, but a lot of them have baked in the rights because remember how many left earlier. Right. Yeah. I mean, how, a lot of the, the big household name, the ones that people know about, they left. Yeah, the they ones left. that were they scared already they left. left. And that was a good yet. argument for why the ones that that stayed would have stayed. But I still think that they're very skittish, you know, and, and who knows. Well, yeah, and the message from Washington has been, I mean, what the president's done in the last three days is kind of a microcosm of what they've been getting from but Washington. HHS letting they... the ones yeah. that hadn't loaded the rates refile them, that was also not a predictable step. You would think that if the president was trying to blow up the markets, which was sort of the messaging when he took away the CSRs, you would not think that his Department of Health and Human Services would then try to clean up behind him and let people out of their contracts to make it better. But that also happened. So we are in a different moment now. We're in a moment now where we know that 2018 is going to be expensive, but it is going to be okay 
even without these cost-sharing reductions. And so then coming up behind and, and, and putting them in starts to feel a little bit less significant, I think. But like not okay in capital letters, okay in, in lowercase <laughs> letters. It's not going to be a good year. It's okay not compared good. to the baseline. Uh, you know, it, it the enrollment diminished in, you know, the, this administration took actions the day they took office to diminish enrollment for the current year for 2017. They, they stopped that outreach in those last 10 critical days. Um, we know there's less outreach. We know there's less choice. We know there's higher premiums. And we know there's a huge amount of confusion, right? There's always confusion right now. I don't get it. People don't. I mean, how many Americans understand the difference between a tax credit and a cost-sharing subsidy and which one they're getting? Nine? I mean, <laughs> most of the media keeps getting it wrong. Right. So, so I, I just think that's hard to measure. But, I mean, I do not anticipate this to be a record-breaking, wonderful enrollment year. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. But it's okay not heading in the right direction. But it's not imploding. And I also think I wrote a piece about this this week that I am proud of because it's complicated, but hopefully it explains something useful, which is that actually I think if consumers are not too confused or too scared to enter this market, I think that a lot of them actually will be held harmless because the state insurance regulators and the insurance companies knew that this was coming or that it was likely to come, and they kind of found a little hack around this problem. So even though we are all going to report that premiums are going up by quite extraordinary amounts, the reality is is that for most consumers, and most, not all, they are going to be able to find plans that are not affected by this change. People who get the cost-sharing reductions are going to be held harmless. They're going to pay the same amount they always paid. They're going to get the same plan they always pay, They always got. People who don't get cost-sharing reductions but do get subsidies for actually for their premiums are actually in this incredible sweet spot where in most states they are going to be able to buy a gold plan with a lower deductible for the same amount of money that they would have spent on a silver plan in a regular year. Or in a lot of cases, they are going to be able to buy a high deductible bronze plan for free or less than $100 a month. I mean, that is a remarkable benefit if for those people. If they go and look and know how to figure you it know, out. There's lots of ifs. And then if you are a person who does not get a subsidy, this is the hardest for you. But if you go off the exchange in most states and you look at all of the plan options, you are probably going to be able to find a plan that is unaffected by these increases. Those people have the hardest time. There's the most variability state to state and how many options are available for them. But I do think it's an important and confusing message, but an important message that if you're someone who buys your own insurance, even though the rates are going up, even though there's all this talk about Obamacare being dead and buried, that actually you are protected in almost every state and you will be able to find insurance for a comparable price to what you bought this year. As I tweeted yesterday, wouldn't it be great if we had people like we could call them navigators or assisters to help people figure all of this out? <laughs> We're gonna, oh, we will move on. Before we go, I want to talk about CHIP because I feel like it's getting lost in the in the whole in the conversation about uh, the, the open enrollment. Um, you know, and CHIP is almost as many kids as there are in the exchanges. There's about 9 million kids on CHIP. There's about 10 million people in the exchanges. It expired October 1st, as we've pointed out many times. Um, is there any update on what's going on with the CHIP bill that, unlike the rest of these things, is already arguably bipartisan? Well, talks are going on in the House and the Senate. The House is out this week, but that hasn't stopped them from uh, Democrats and Republicans in the House from attacking each other on CHIP Maybe and just blaming bots. one another. Yeah. Um, well, in the House, the problem is how to pay for it, right? Exactly. They well, haven't figured it out in the House and the Senate. Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They and, just haven't started fighting about mm-hmm. it in public in the Senate. <laughs> and so the Republicans want to uh, have the pay for be on the restricting um, 
subsidies for Medicare for people with high incomes. And so they are marketing that as, oh, Democrats want to protect the 1%, which is a little misleading to say the least. Um, and uh, they Republicans are claiming that Democrats have not made any counteroffers. Democrats said we have. We've made several counteroffers. They've all been rejected. And so that that's sort of at a stalemate there. And in the Senate, all they will tell me is that talks are ongoing. <laughs> But but remember the talks are ongoing might actually be I mean we we didn't we didn't know how well Senator Hatch and Senator Wyden the, the the chairman of the finance committee and the ranking democrat they were negotiating quite effectively without us really knowing I mean they were quiet about it and they you know a few weeks ago they surprised us they came out with a plan one night it was a five year funding thing which we you know five years no of funding expected. which we had not expected it was bipartisan yet yeah, the pay fors were not resolved it was it was comprehensive they got through this really contentious thing about this so called payment bump and how to how to address that this by, is extra money that extra, was provided right. for chips so under the what, affordable care if, act if ha- if on the Senate, I, I think it's possible they are. I don't know if they're sitting in a room and sticking out their tongue at each other or if they're actually getting down to business. Either are, either are quite plausible. But if the Senate, I think it's possible the Senate is making some progress because they surprised us once. And it's been an amicable pro- process in the Senate. Also, and though, important to remember that the Senate Hatch, Finance Committee. Right, Hatch right. really cares about right. it. But the yeah. Senate Finance Committee, which does CHIP, also does taxes. That's right. not the, the, in the House. It's, a, it's two different committees. Right. But in the Senate, the Finance right. Committee is sort of focusing on taxes, so, yeah. doing chip on the side. Right. Do I know what's going on quietly behind the scenes? No, I don't. But I th- when they say they're talking, they actually may really be talking and they may be making progress. And if they're either way, we'll find out. In the House, they're definitely in the tongue sticking out at each other's stage. They do it by press releases, but it's the equivalent of sitting in a room sticking out their tongue at each other. I mean, you read the press releases. That's what the, that's what the House is doing. The chip is, there's a little bit of a cautionary tale here, though, for this, this CSR deal, because the CSR deal is two years of appropriation, and the expectation is then we would come back at the end of the two years and reauthorize it, you know, reappropriate the money again. But I think as we see with CHIP, you know, the expectation was similar, that this would just always get renewed, and there was bipartisan consensus, and yet they weren't able to do it. And in CHIP, it's sort of okay because they're, you know, the states haven't all run out of money. And, this and is CMS not the first is, time they've missed right, the deadline. Yeah. You're, right, you're seeing on Twitter two things. You're seeing on Twitter that they've never, and other social media and political advocacy, you're seeing they've never missed a deadline before. As Julie has reminded us, they have. And they ha- you're also seeing they kicked 9 million kids off of health care. They haven't. It is a problem. It is a serious problem. But it's not. But, but it's a much more serious problem in the context of these cost sharing reductions because, as we've seen this year, the insurers need to have certainty about whether they're going to get paid, not at the deadline, but months before the deadline, because they have to decide do I want to participate in this market? What products am I going to offer? What is the price that I'm going to offer them at? And I think that it's it's very likely that if this Alexander Murray bill becomes law, we're going to have 2018 rocked by the 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 specter of those payments going away. Then we're going to have 2019 where all the premiums come down and things seem kind of stable again. And then 2020, it could just jump back up again because it's very unlikely that Congress will get its act together to pass this thing in enough time to give the insurers the signal that they need. Right. But that's like you know, a millennium away. I mean, we don't know who, you know, we don't know what the makeup of this House. The Senate's going to be a year from now. I mean, we, we there's a, a lot of things we don't know. I mean, Washington operates on cliffs. That's why we were also surprised that Cl- that Chip, both the House and Senate, are calling for five years. I mean, five years is a significant amount of time to not have to worry about But I something. think the cost-sharing reductions are not conducive to a cliff. 
because of the, the just yes. the, the, well, because the amount of advanced time. plans yes. right. necessary. Yes. Right. Yes. All right. Well, we'll have, we will have plenty of time to talk about this in coming weeks. But today we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. I'm going to start this week uh, because I want us to talk about this story at least briefly. It's a joint investigation by The Washington Post and 60 Minutes, and it's about a bill that passed Congress in 2016 and signed by President Obama that undercut the Drug Enforcement Administration's ability to stop the shipment of questionably large amounts of opioids to local pharmacies. We're talking hundreds of thousands of pills to places with populations in the very low thousands. I will say this is an amazingly complicated and well-told story about how some former DEA officials went to work for drug distribution firms and basically snuck this change through Congress and got it signed by the president without almost anybody realizing that it was weakening rather than strengthening DEA's enforcement abilities. Uh, And before we go any further, I have to put in a plug here for one of the story's authors, my former Michigan Daily classmate, Lenny Bernstein. Um, What I want to ask you guys, though, is how this plays into the whole opioid crisis story. Is it a one-off or is this a another example of how people who make money off the drug industry really don't care who gets hurt as long as they're profiting. Well, I just came here from having moderated an hour and a half discussion with some opioid experts. Um, the, like the more I write about and think about and talk to people about more the opioid crisis, the, the harder and more complicated and more multifaceted. It, it's so it is it, it's a nexus of just so many really hard to solve problems. I, I will say on this particular story, um, you know, my one of my reporters, Brett Norman, who who actually has covered a lot of this, he did point out that even when the DEA had this power, it wasn't like they were stopping those shipments. I mean, this well, they were stopping some, some, but it was you know, I mean, look at look at the Pulitzer Prize winning piece last year in Charleston, West Virginia, about you know what happened in that state with my former Kaiser fellow colleague uh, Eric Iyer. I don't I don't know that this is a game changer in any way. Next week, the president is supposed to reveal his national emergency strategy on opioids. You know, we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, you know, this is something that there is bipartisan concern about. I mean, they've put some money into it. They've passed some bipartisan legislation. I, I, but I think it's going to take us a number of years to get There's out of this. A, there has been a growing awareness of the medical contributors to the opioid addiction crisis. And there's been some public policy around that about trying to, and also just some some norms changing, trying to teach doctors, you know, don't prescribe this many drugs. And that's been happening at both the state and federal level. And the sort of whiplash, uh, to use our theme of the day, on this particular measure feels like it's a piece of that, of trying to control the distribution of prescription drugs. But the opioid crisis now is also a crisis of illegal drugs, of fentanyl and heroin. And I think that's going to require a different set of policy responses. Right. Maybe we could have a whole, maybe when Congress comes, next time they go on recess, maybe we can spend a whole time talking about opioids. We should. Anything, MPO? Yes. Um, I was very interested in a great piece in Bloomberg that really dove into the short-term health plans that could be massively expanded by the president's new executive order. And all of the lawsuits all across the country around those plans, people saying that they paid all their premiums and were denied coverage for huge medical bills and just looking into the track record of these plans and what they have meant for real people and they have not been great. And one of the plans that was mentioned in that story was a plan offered by a company called Golden Rule that is owned by United Healthcare. United Healthcare is the largest health insurer in the US. They are not in the Obamacare exchanges and the CEO of that company said this week that they are very excited about expanding into this uh, market in the coming years. Awesome. 
Joanne. And my extra credit is a global health story, and uh, it's a piece in Pacific Standard. It was It's by Fabiola Ortiz and Megan Clement, and I'm probably going to uh, mispronounce the name of this doctor, so if he hears me in Africa, I apologize. It's a profile of Dr. Dennis Mukwege, maybe I got it right, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he is an obstetrician gynecologist who has made um, a specialty out of um, repairing the physical damage, starting, let's start with the physical damage um, done to tens of thousands of women in Africa who have been raped as part of, um, you know, wars, conflict, uh, ethnic strife. It is a weapon of war, and it is from two-year-olds to 80-year-olds, and it, you know, so he is partly a surgeon who has developed techniques and then teaching other surgeons, and so there's the medical piece, and then there's the larger social piece of raising awareness that he has been doing with colleagues and like-minded physicians and advocates trying to say this is not okay. Wow. Marco. Uh, I wanted to recommend a piece from Julia Belouz at Vox.com that was a really deep dive into industry funding of research about the health benefits of chocolate. I was so interested in this piece. So this was a great piece that looked at, it turns out the Mars company that makes, you know, Mars bars and other other candies, uh, M&Ms, um, has been sponsoring, extensively sponsoring research into the health benefits of chocolate. They've endowed faculty chairs. They uh, pay out grants to researchers. And there is this growing and, you know, kind of robust and well covered by the media body of research suggesting that certain Clickbait. chemicals... <laughs> in chocolate uh, may have health benefits. But she found, she looked at 100 studies that had been funded by this company and found that they, you know, of course, all <laughs> turned out to have positive results. And she pointed out that results are actually quite modest. And generally speaking, when you're eating chocolate, you're also eating quite a lot of sugar and fat, which we know contributes to obesity and other health problems. And it's, it's just like an interesting picture, first of all, into how chocolate has become uh, seen as a health food by certain people, but also about how the food industry really does influence the kind of research that we have and, uh, and can be sort of distorting of what the right picture is about what is nutritious and what is not. Well, good. Thank you all. Um, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rodner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Alice Olstein. I'm at Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.